Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, reassurances from the Prime Minister that vaccines will continue to arrive as the European Union threatens to limit the export of doses. Executives at both Pfizer and Moderna who have assured me uh, that we are very much continuing to be on track uh, for receiving our full doses of vaccines in the timelines provided. That is uh, a full six million of doses from Pfizer and Moderna uh, by the end of Q1, the end of March. And we are extremely confident we will be able to have everyone vaccinated who wants it in Canada by September 2021. The Liberals say stricter border measures are on the way. Given the virulence of the virus in the world today, Our government absolutely is looking seriously and carefully at measures to further guarantee uh, the toughness of our border measures. Uh, We're looking at that very actively right now. And the fallout continues in Alberta after the cancelling of the Keystone XL pipeline. They are losing their jobs as a result of the first decision by the new U.S. president at a time where thousands have already lost their jobs in this pandemic. It's Wednesday, January 27th. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by longtime political writer and broadcaster, Dan Legere. Dan, good morning. Hi, Mark. So let's talk about where we stand on vaccines, and uh, because the, the government is answering a lot of tough questions about how we're procuring vaccines, whether enough of them are coming to the country on the right timetable. It does appear as though we've fallen behind the pace of other countries, uh, but the government keeps reassuring us that we'll be back on track soon. Uh, should Canadians have confidence that, that this is in hand? Well, that's a huge question, isn't it? Because I think uh, confidence is one of the sort of human emotions or feelings or, or ideas that are has really been damaged in the pandemic. I mean, it, it just uh, the virus seems to keep getting by all our walls and all our uh, efforts. Um, and uh, and I don't know how confident people really are either in uh, you know any government's ability to handle the situation, and uh, and the ability of society you know more broadly to uh, to cope with it. Um, I don't know how useful it is to have a scorecard. I know it's great for opposition politicians, but to have a scorecard toting up how many doses go here and how many go there, and there's a natural human. Um, you know, competitiveness, if you will. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I do think that things are coming along bumpily and, and sometimes wanderingly, if you will. Uh, but I think we're getting there, and I think Canadians will see that as they, you know, as more and more of their neighbors are, are actually vaccinated. Let's talk about travel restrictions. Um, there, there are people who are pushing for tougher measures for people returning to the country, entering the country. Uh, there are places in the world where you're required to stay in a hotel for a couple of weeks and undergo testing before you're allowed to, to return to your homes. Uh, the government has, has suggested, the prime minister has suggested, that, that there might be tougher measures on the way. What do you expect from this? Well, I, I think tougher measures are what's needed. You know, I, I guess I'm speaking from the privileged uh, position of being inside the the sort of Nova Scotia bubble, if you will. I mean, they're, they're hardcore here. You, you have to self-isolate for two weeks, even if you come from New Brunswick or PEI. Uh, you know, it's it's I think 
probably one of the most effective measures you can get because if you can contain the problem in an area where you can see it and deal with it, then you can dismantle it piecemeal if required. Uh, I think Canada has been way too slack. Now, you know, sure, it's easy for Nova Scotia, which is about 15 miles away from being an island type of thing, um, and tough for a place like Manitoba or Ontario or Quebec. But at the same time, these are the kinds of measures that seem to be required. And I noticed that Premier Pallister in, uh, in Manitoba is talking about um, requiring self-isolation for people coming across the Manitoba borders. So, you know, these are the, the steps that are going to have to be taken. This is a full-blown crisis, like nothing we've ever experienced. And uh, the government is, is, you know, it's got its critics now, and a lot of them are noisy. Uh, and people, in many cases, don't like these restrictions. But I defy any of those people to come up with a better alternative to get rid of the virus, because we can't fix the economy or these other problems until the virus is dealt with. And that's clear. All right, let's turn to the Keystone XL pipeline. The Alberta government and Premier Jason Kenney continue to push hard against the Biden administration's decision to cancel the the authority for the project. And uh, that leaves uh, the federal government kind of caught in the middle to some extent. But many people, I, I think, feel that this is futile, that Keystone effectively is dead. So what ultimately is is at stake for Alberta, for Jason Kenney? What, what cards do they have left to play in this? I don't think they've got many cards to play at all, Mark. Uh, you know, I think the, the whole hand has been on the table for quite a while, and... Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, Joe Biden just tipped the table over on the floor the other day and sent everything flying in terms of, of Keystone XL. Uh, I did notice that it, it was observed by some of the reporters that uh, Trudeau and, and John Kerry, who's Biden's uh, envoy for climate change, uh, spoke yesterday. And, and according to the readout, Keystone didn't even get mentioned. Um, you know, there are polls that suggest most Canadians are, are moving on from Keystone. Um, so there's a lot of issues there. I, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm easy for me to say maybe at this great distance, but it, it sure looks like Kenny uh, has way overplayed his hand and, um, and is going to be left holding the bag. He can try to blame Trudeau all he wants, but it wasn't the Canadian government that decided against Keystone. It was the U.S. government, and they have the right to do things as they see fit for their own reasons. And uh, if the shoe were on the other foot, if the Americans were, were calling from the rooftops that Canada should allow a pipeline to go across its territory, um, and, the, and the political leadership here was against it, I, you can imagine what the reaction would be. So uh, I think, uh, you know, it's a tough, tough political problem for Kenny because he staked so much of his own political capital on this. Um, but it's a huge defeat for Kenny and, and for his position on, uh, on the oil sands. Are there other options uh, to preserve the jobs in the Alberta economy that are adversely affected by this? Um, I don't see a lot of options. I mean, you know, I think a lot of people have been urging Alberta for years to diversify its economy and find other ways of creating employment other than the oil patch and everything that goes with it. You know, the global economy is changing. Consumer preferences are changing. Technology is changing. And all of these things are mitigating against uh, Alberta. Now, I, I was reading the other day that Alberta's oil production has actually been going up. So they're finding something to do with it. And um, oil is going to be with us for a long time to come. So, 
hopefully at some point the feds and, and Alberta can kind of bury the political hatchet and find a way to move the Alberta economy forward uh, without depending so much on the technologies of the past. All right, let's talk about a regulatory agency that would oversee social media companies. That's the recommendation of a panel that was commissioned by the federal government to look into this. Uh, They would oversee companies like Facebook and Google, require them to have content moderation practices, and to comply with with, uh, kind of a a legal responsibility, a fiduciary responsibility of sorts to act uh, responsibly, a duty uh, to Canadians. What do you think about that, and how how feasible is it? Um, well, those are two big, big different questions. I mean, <laughs> I'm not big on creating some other agency, you know, and a bunch of uh, bureaucratic jobs uh, that would just, you know, it would, it would you know, benefit some, you know, a particular group of civil servants. I'm not really keen on that idea. But in terms of trying to impose some sort of sensible regulation on social media, I think it's high time. I mean, I, you know, I was editing a newspaper when Google and Facebook and everybody just came in, swooped up, took all the jobs, all the business, all the advertising, never created a single job in Nova Scotia, as far as I ever could find, and and yet managed to dismantle huge blocks of the Canadian media business and, and never replaced it uh, with anything, you know, that was responsible and, and responsive, if you will, to, to readers. So, you know, social media has been a platform for all kinds of crazy speech, conspiracy theories, hate, uh, criminal activity has gone on on it, as we've seen in the United States. And, um, you know, so it is high time that these media companies, one way or the other, uh, are, are brought to under, they have a social responsibility in the economies and in the communities and societies in which they operate. And right now, it's just been, uh, you know, up till now, it's been uh, a wholesale uh, free-for-all, all going one way, and that is uh, to the social media companies. So uh, it's high time they, they realize they have a responsibility, not only to their shareholders, but to the, uh, to the broader uh, society as well. All right. We'll see how that report is received. Dan, thank you so much for joining us today. Okay, Mark. Thanks for the call. That's longtime political writer and broadcaster Dan Legere. The crisis that's been there for a long time, but it's been exposed by COVID-19. Now, let's take a look at what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. In the National Post, Tasha Carradine argues the pandemic is already changing the future of Canadian politics. Carradine writes, the pandemic has upended every facet of our lives. Communities, which were already disadvantaged, have borne the brunt of the impact. There is a growing urban-rural exodus and a nosedive in trust in our elected officials. This could spell trouble for all politicians, but mostly for incumbents. A loss of trust could lead to a loss of power. It could see third or fourth parties appeal to voters on the basis that they should be trusted more than Liberal and Tory politicians who held the reins during the pandemic. In the Toronto Star, Jennifer Zelmer and David Mowat argue that we must rethink COVID-19 testing in long-term care homes. They write, Eight in ten deaths from COVID-19 in the first wave of the pandemic in Canada came from long-term care. Spread of COVID-19 in these settings has proven challenging to control. Vaccines offer hope for the future and are beginning to roll out, but they are not a panacea. 
We owe it to those living and working in long-term care to use every tool available to prevent, prepare for, and manage outbreaks, including refreshed approaches to testing. In the Globe and Mail, Gary Mason calls Jason Kenney's bet on Keystone a taxpayer-funded trip to the casino. Mason writes, TC Energy of Calgary, the project proponent, has already started laying off 1,000 construction workers in another blow to the Alberta economy. No one should feel good about that. But nor should Albertans feel good about their premier putting $1.5 billion of their money at risk on a venture whose future depended on the outcome of a U.S. presidential election. Most of the decisions he's made since becoming premier in 2019 have been dreadful, not the least of which was his decision to invest in Keystone. Now, here's what's coming up on Canada's political agenda. The Indigenous Services Minister will give an update this morning on the COVID-19 situation in the country's Indigenous communities. CPAC's Martin Stringer has more on that. Mark, Indigenous Services Minister Mark Miller and his senior officials will give their COVID-19 briefing starting at 9.30 a.m. Eastern Time here in Ottawa. This week's briefing comes on the heels of their last update in which the minister and his officials warned that Canada is witnessing a rapid increase in infection rates in Indigenous communities, especially a worrying surge in cases on reserve, almost 90% of which are in Western Canada. Now, the smaller, isolated Indigenous communities have been later in receiving many health resources and vaccines. But Mark, one interesting thing to watch for in today's briefing is that while Canadians as a whole are deeply concerned by issues of supply of the Pfizer vaccine, which has been interrupted as that company retools its production facilities in Europe, well, interestingly enough, the vast majority of Indigenous communities will be depending on the Moderna vaccine, whose supply so far has not been put into question. So it'll be interesting to watch and listen to that briefing today to see what trends are happening in Canada's First Nations and Indigenous communities. Thanks, Martin. Also today, the Prime Minister will attend the Liberal Caucus meeting and question period. Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland will attend the Liberal Caucus meeting. And Green Party Parliamentary Leader Elizabeth May will hold a news conference to speak about the current approach to question period. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Wednesday, January 27th. Tune into Primetime Politics tonight on CPAC for coverage of all the day's events. Our podcast returns tomorrow morning. Have a great day.